Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Um, can everybody hear me? Yep, it's fine. Good. So I'm actually going to talk about the NHS, which is why you're all here. And of course, it came into being on the 5th of July, 1948. Um, and um, that was the, the appointed day. But what many of you may not know is that the NHS has actually been abolished as of from the Health and Social Care Act 2012. How many of you knew that? Hands up. No, okay. So I'm going to take you through how that's happening and how, how that is actually happening. But I thought it would be important to go back to the beginning. And from the beginning, there were really two main controversies. Um, uh, the... Well, actually, I should go back to the very beginning, which is that the NHS, as you know, was one of the five pillars of the welfare state. And it was brought in, it was conceived, really, in the war years when, of course, we had um, British welfare fighting Nazi warfare. And that's what Beveridge, William Beveridge, was busy doing. And he produced his... um, plan for social security in 1942 and that plan was a plan for the welfare state and it would set out to slay the five giant evils some of you may be old enough to remember that plan, I don't know Um, but those five giant evils were want, ignorance idleness, disease and squalor And the five pillars of the welfare state included education, our National Health Service, full employment, um, and of course welfare, and housing. So the NHS has to be seen in that context. So any assault that's happening to the NHS, you can bet your bottom dollar that it's actually happening also to the other four pillars. And actually, of course, it has been happening, as many of you know. So, um, the politicians from the outset weren't terribly keen on Beveridge's plan, and they used the excuse of affordability, and of course Britain was really broke, it was fighting a war, and it was broke after the war, and they were very sceptical about whether an NHS could be affordable, let alone the welfare state. But William Beveridge, who was um, a liberal wasn't Labour, he was an economist and a civil servant, he was absolutely scathing uh, to those politicians that said we can't afford either an NHS or the welfare state. I think there are seats somewhere, but anyway. And this is what he said, the abolition of want before the war was easily within the economic resources of the community, it was a needless scandal due to not taking the trouble to prevent it. In other words, it wasn't to do with the amount of wealth in the the society. It was to do with our word, redistribution, how we were distributing wealth. And I think that's really pertinent today when our politicians tell us in times of austerity we can't afford education or a welfare state or a national health service because these has very similar echoes. And Beveridge was absolutely uh, adamant that it was to be afforded. And it was all about political will. It was really nothing to do with the economics. It's to do with the politics. 
And Aniram Bevan went even further in how he um, thought and conceived of a national health service. Somehow societies more wholesome, more serene, healthier, if at the back of our minds every citizen has the knowledge not, not only they have access to health care, but everybody has it. And that's been really the social contract. And it's no surprise that the NHS has been the most popular of all the welfare institutions, much to the Treasury's surprise and consternation. And it still remains the most popular, very popular institution. But from the outset, they, f they face this uh, cry of we can't afford it from the Treasury. And um, the other thing was, of course, that people would abuse it if they got a National Health Service. They would somehow abuse it, and we hear echoes today again of that. But of course, in fact, things settled down and people didn't abuse it. And it could be afforded, although, of course, Beveridge constantly had to go back, and the politicians, to the Treasury cap in hand. But I'll show you, the Treasury had a very tight reign over costs, and they didn't ever escalate in the way that was claimed. But <coughs> in addition to that, one of the dilemmas was how much private sector interest there should be. But in reality, the private sector wasn't really interested in health care. Um, capital was really broken at that point, and the municipalities and the voluntary sector, which had owned the hospitals and, and services, really didn't want them. Um, and uh, Bevan didn't really have a problem in persuading them that we should have a national health service. And we'd had the experiment with the emergency bed services during the war when things were all brought under state control. So there was only one group of interest, private interests, that were opposed to the NHS. Who was it? Yeah. So here we are, the doctors say no. <laughs> but in fact, the doctors ended up saying yes, and Bevan struck a deal with them, um, and they could begin to see the advantages of having a fully salaried service. The one group that weren't salaried, of course, were the general practitioners, and, of course, the Treasury itself was instrumental in that because they ne the GPs worked, as you know, from their, home, their homes often, where their offices were, and the Treasury didn't want to buy out the, pra the practices. So a separate deal was struck for the GPs, but actually NHS doctors uh, and staff enjoyed um, a national salaried service with national terms and conditions. Um, and it's... Uh, a final irony that some 70 years later, these very same doctors, three generations on, would be fighting to defend the NHS. So here they are during the passage of the bill, doctors and health service workers outside Whitehall, the Department of Health, <coughs> fighting to save our NHS. So actually doctors have become amongst the staunchest advocates um, of the National Health Service. <coughs> But I should say that here, this is the 1946 Act that brought in the NHS, and in, in fact it's two acts, so it's very slim. You can see how slim it was. Tiny little act that actually nationalised the whole, all the health services in England and brought them under public ownership and control and brought in a salaried service. Um, this is the Act that abolishes the NHS. 
457 pages long. And I'm going to take you through not every single page, but I'll take you through some little bits of this act. And the crucial part of this act is in the opening section, which removes the duty on the Secretary of State to secure and provide health care for all. And this is the fundamental duty. This is a duty, everything flows from the law, so everything flowed from that duty. And I want you to remember it, because it's the most important thing. Because this is what the Act does. It removes the duty to secure and provide health care. So much so that David Owen, during its passage um, the bill, of the pill, called it the Abdication Act. The Health Secretary of State was abdicating. And why did we need an act that was 457 pages long? Well, we needed it because it's bringing in, in, in insurance structures very much like those in the US. And it's doing some other things. It's giving the Secretary of State, they've been given legal powers to create a market, and new powers are being given to commercial providers to pick and choose who will get treatment and who will get care. Because remember that central duty to secure and provide health care for all, which was set out in the 1946 Act, has now been abolished. Now, I'm going to take you through the organising principles of the NHS for the first 60 or 70 years. And it's terribly important to remember this. They were based on redistribution, beverages concept. So money was raised on the basis of income and distributed on the basis of need. But the principles were that they would be universal, <coughs> comprehensive, the cradle-to-grave care, equitable, free at the point of de delivery, under public ownership and control, with strong mechanisms for public accountability and integration. And that's really important, that word, because the word service providers didn't actually enter our vocabulary until the 1990s. It was services, and they were integrated into the administrative structures. So that's the organizing principles of a universal healthcare system. But the government has brought in a market, and indeed New Labour started the process throughout 2000, and markets are based on very different lines. Their organizing principles are based on risk selection and risk avoidance. So any of you who have car insurance, health insurance, travel insurance, will know the way in which insurers cherry-pick. There's risk selection and risk of job guidance. And the market has to be able to identify risks, predict the risks, price the risks, and charge a premium for them, allocate the risks through a commercial contract, and then transfer those risks. So that's how markets work. They need a completely different bureaucracy which is dedicated to risk selection and risk avoidance because markets, the private sector, is, of course, risk-averse. It doesn't want unprofitable patients or unprofitable treatments. And that's largely why we needed an act this big. So I think that's really important to remember that markets operate through risk selection 
And as every student of science or engineering knows, structures follow function. So, if you're devising a system which is based on equity, then you have to have a system where structures follow that function. But in the new system, the structures, funding and bureaucracy have to be designed to facilitate providers to select out profitable patients and treatments and get rid of those that they don't want. And I'll show you how it works, because structures actually matter. And if you remember, for 10 or 11 years, politicians were telling you structures don't matter. Well, anybody that turns their light on or uses electricity or sewage systems know that structures absolutely do matter. So to think that structures don't matter in the National Health Service is absolutely ridiculous. And this is a structure that was really important. We had the Secretary of State who had the duty to secure and provide health care for all. He couldn't obviously oversee the whole country of 50 or 60 million people now. And so he had to delegate that duty to units of administration which were geographic. So to geographic areas which were all what's called contiguous. They were joined up so nobody could fall through the cracks. In a market-based system, you've got to be able to risk-select and risk-avoid. So you actually have a unit of administration which is a fund, or a, some people call it an insurance pool. But it's not geographic, and not everybody is covered. So this is the old-fashioned structures that we had from 1948 onwards. They've been changed. We had regions introduced in 1974. But you can see it's very, very simple. Can you all see the screen all right? Is it okay? We've got the Secretary of State for Health, the Department of Health. We've got 14 regions, so that was a regional planning tier that covered the whole, 14 regions covered the whole country. Then there were 160 district health authorities. And then we had hospital and community services that were integrated into the health authorities, the administrative tiers. So in this system, you can see very clear accountability. You can see who's responsible. But the other thing is that the hospitals and community services weren't all powerful. The most powerful people were in the district health authorities, the district general managers. And they had the responsibility, remember, for securing and providing the health services for the people in their area, that duty to secure and provide. So they were then responsible for the hospitals and services in their area. GPs I've put out in a limb, and we can come back to them. But it's very it's pretty straightforward, really, this public bureaucracy or public hierarchy. Contrast this with this bureaucracy here. And the first thing you can see is that you can't really work out who's in charge. And that's because the Secretary of State no longer is in charge. What we now have, and I don't expect you to memorize this, is um, we have regulators. We are moving into a regulated market, just like the utilities. So we have an economic regulator called Moyes, which is headed up by an ex-McKinsey accountant. We have, um, not, um, isn't Moyes, that was Bill Moyes. Um, his name's gone out of my head. Somebody can remind me. Um, we have a monitor. We have, um, which is the economic regulator, and also the price regulator. And then we have the Care Quality Commission, which is the quality regulator, underneath the monitor. 
We have the National Commissioning Board, which many of you is in the legislation, but which on the 1st of April, after the Act came in, changed its name to NHS England. But actually, its statutory name is NHS National Commissioning Board, but they obviously thought NHS England was more appealing to the public. And NHS England gets something like 80% of the funds channeled to it, and those funds flow into... Um, there's a pointer somewhere. Um, see if you can see. Oh, well, maybe it doesn't. Those funds flow into the clinical commissioning groups. Can you see this? You want the house lights down, yeah, Elizabeth? Okay. Um, That's not you somebody can do. Oh, slightly. Thank you. Okay. So here we are. The Secretary of State, Parliament, to the side. They diminished. Department of Health, you can see how everything is shrinking and you really can't work out what's going on. But the old area-based structures have gone and we've got these new clinical commissioning groups which are very powerful. And it's, of course, what the government said that GPs would be in charge of the new NHS and they'd be in charge of the new commissioning groups. So this is the old structures, if you remember. The duty to secure and provide from the Secretary of State is devolved through to these health authorities, the strategic health authorities, and then what was called district health authorities were renamed as primary care trusts. They're the little grey things that you can see. But what's really important is nobody can get left out because that duty is devolved to those areas and everybody is contained in those areas. Nobody can slip through the cracks. But in the new system... The area-based geographic structures are dissolved away entirely. These clinical commissioning groups don't have any area-based duties apart from emergency care. And they are actually funds or pools, as you can see. They have no geographic areas. And they don't automatically cover all the residents in an area. So your CCG may not cover the whole of Bristol, your CCGs for Bristol. They may not cover everyone. Because the way you get into a CCG is no longer by being a resident with an automatic entitlement. It's by joining up with a general practice. It's a member, so CCGs are membership-based, just as insurance companies are membership-based, or the AA is membership-based. So you have to become a member, and the only way you can become a member is by joining a general practice, but today you'll have seen that hundreds of general practices face going to the wall because they are no longer viable, which means it raises the question as to what happens to those patients and will they get into CCGs. And of course, although 90% of people in the country have got a GP, the most vulnerable groups don't. And they include the homeless, they include... Um, refugees, asylum seekers, and of course many inner city areas. But increasingly, because clinical commissioning groups no longer have a duty to secure and provide health care anymore, some groups of people will be particularly vulnerable because commissioning groups will not be commissioning all the health services that people need. And they will include people like the elderly, people with learning difficulties, people with mental health problems, and people with chronic diseases who will find it increasingly difficult either to access a GP, and if they can't access a GP, to get a CCG, 
But if they do get into a CCG, they may find that the clinical commissioning group no longer buys the services that they need. And that's happening with increasing frequency. So I've, I want you to remember we're moving away now from a public bureaucracy where everybody was covered to a membership system. And we're in the very early stages now of insurance funds. So clinical commissioning groups, they're being set up as insurance funds, although they are NHS, they're statutory bodies, but they're not area-based, people aren't automatically covered, they're recruited on the basis of membership, and their funding is now on the basis of membership. So the whole funding formula has completely changed. Now, what's happening to these providers, which we used to call services for the first 50 years? As you know, these services are being broken up at alarming speed and they're being put out to tender to for-profit commercial companies and the staff, which were under national terms and conditions, are also being transferred. I don't know what's happening in Bath or Bristol, but you'll know that Virgin has big contracts for £100 million down in Devon and Exeter and for some of the most vulnerable services, people with mental health problems, adolescent care, all the community-based services are being torn up and put in out to tender. And community-based services are very easy because there's no good baseline. So it's easy for the private sector to come in and actually make so-called efficiency savings and cuts because it's not, there's no good baseline. Hospitals are physical, you can actually see them. So when they close beds and they close wards, you can actually feel what's happening. Much more difficult with community services. The other thing that's happening is NHS hospitals are being starved of funds, as you know, especially those with large PFI projects, and are very rapidly being forced into deficits. Those deficits are being manufactured by the government. Remember, those deficits are not down to the individual trusts. They're manufactured on the basis of what the government is pushing into them and the PFI. And I want you to remember this because over the last three years, the, government, the NHS has returned more than £3 billion back to the Treasury in unspent funds. So how is it that NHS trusts are going into deficit? And they're tiny, these deficits, but it's enough to bring in Monitor and the special trust administrators. But the other thing that's happened, of course, is that public health, because I started off life, like Anna, as a public health physician working in the NHS, we've been completely excised from this, and we've been put out to local government to do health promotion and stop smoking activities. But the stuff that we used to do, which was the needs assessment, the data collection, the data analysis to inform planning and services and needs and where they went in. That's all been lost. That's all going out to McKinsey's and PwC because we've lost our jobs. We've been shoved out to the local authorities and the government's now bringing in all the management consultants to do not planning but to do market forecasting and closure of the NHS. Because what the government is intended, is in, is, uh, intended to, to do is to close down what remains of the public sector and to force the public to be increasingly disillusioned with what remains of the NHS so that they will increasingly go privately for their care, those that can afford to. 
Now, of course, if you're, an NA, if you're a commercial provider like Virgin, you certainly don't want to get lumbered with profit, unprofitable patients, and you want to be able to sell them all sorts of new things. You want to be able to sell them insurance or private physio or allow them to top up. That's the American way. You go into an American healthcare system and you'll get offered a bewildering array of new products so long as you can afford to pay and need doesn't come into it. And that's what this act has given. Huge new powers to the commercial sector to decide which NHS funded patients they'll take and what they want to charge for in addition. So what the NHS has become is a payment stream. The government's raising the taxes in order to distribute it to commercial um, providers. It started it with the private finance initiative, but that's what it is. The second thing is it's a logo. Everybody loves the NHS, so when you walk around with your Serco badge or your Virgin badge or your United Health, you will have the NHS reassuringly on the other lapel. So that's the other thing that's beginning to happen. And here they are. Sorry. And you can see this is only a sample of a few of them. <coughs> but we've got the management consultants like PWCs and McKinsey's. We've got the Royal Bank of Scotland, which ironically we own, but which is ripping off the NHS on a daily basis. We've got United Health Group, an American company, which has been in there for a long time. South African company, Netcare, which is in serious difficulty in South Africa. Big scandals there. Care UK, which does a lot of long-term care. And, of course, now we've got Circle, um, which is coming in and taking over our hospitals. So that's only a small sample of them. More than £112 billion of NHS funds now are increasingly flowing through commercial contracts to hundreds of different providers. Some are mama and papa, startup <coughs> companies run by nurses, run by staff, run by doctors, and others are the big ones, like Atos, like Fresenius. <coughs> uh, some of them are in, from Canada, like Interhealth. All, from all, so we've got global finance and global companies penetrating the NHS, all looking for their share. So this is happening at an alarming rate. And of course, these contracts are commercial in confidence, and they're not in the public domain. So if you hear of a contract being put out to tender, you should not only be opposing the privatization, you should be demanding also the contract details. Now, privatization didn't happen overnight. It's happened in various stages. So it's not just this act. This act really finishes everything off. And I haven't got time to go through this tonight, but it is in um, uh, my book, NHS PLC, The Privatization of Our Healthcare. But you can see it goes back to 1979 when Thatcher came in. You have the Griffiths supermarket management reforms when she said, why don't we know the price of things? Um, he pointed out it was about, Griffiths pointed out it was actually what the, mar it wasn't about the cost. She said, why don't we know the cost of things? And Griffiths said, it isn't the cost, it's what the price is and what the market will bear. But we have efficiency in management. We have a whole new layer of technocrats who come in and control gradually moving away from professionals. Whereas in the old days, the hospital administrators were very much there to serve, to serve the patients and to serve the staff. 
Now we have a new management system. <coughs> Phase two, you'll know, which was Kenneth Clark's brutal internal market, which for the first time introduced the language of purchaser-provider split. We'd never had providers before and established hospitals as, public, as corporate bodies. Corporate bodies in their own right with huge new costs because they had to have their own HR departments, etc. Then we have this big phase of the PFI PPPs, this legacy of public-private partnerships. How many of you know what PFI is, Private Finance Initiative? Most of you will know, but it's where the government now no longer designs bills and no longer operates its hospitals, but the private sector designs, builds and operates them under 30-year contracts. Um, very, very expensive and creating enormous debt for the long term, but also big affordability problems. So that was all throughout phase three. Then New Labour comes in in 1997, and the PFI contracts are all signed very, very quickly. And we have phase four, which is the NHS plan with Alan Milburn, who is a great privateer. And he begins systematically the privatisation project, which includes establishing foundation trusts to give them more freedom to become entrepreneurial, to enter into joint ventures with business. Milman pushes the pricing, but also the privatisation policy through the waiting list initiative and elective surgery for hearts and cataract, four billion pounds under the Independent Sector Treatment Centre programme. But the other thing is that we have the renegotiation of the GP and hospital consultant contracts. And this, this contract renegotiation, of course, we all got paid very handsomely for it, but it was really about making sure that our contracts would enable us to work in the marketplace. So our new employers can tell us that we can look after public as well as private patients and mix the care, and we can treat the same patient who can be both a mixture of public and private. So these new contracts were a very, very important part of the marketization. And the other thing is, of course, we had the government doing what's called service unbundling, unbundling the services to put them into the marketplace. So things like immunization, screening, vaccination, diagnostics, radiology, all of these services were being unbundled and put out to tender and into the marketplace. And now we're in the last phase, the removal of the duty to secure and provide, as we move very gradually, very slowly, to an insurance-based system. But that's where the government wants to go, and it's modelled it all along the US lines, because the transatlantic flow between the US and UK civil service is absolutely phenomenal, and it's been going on for more than 20 years. But it's a one-way flow of ideas, unfortunately. Unlike throughout the 50s and 60s, where well, the UK NHS was a model maker for the rest of the world. And I think that's really important to remember. It was a model maker for Europe. You know, Greece and Spain and Portugal, they didn't get their national health services until very late on in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, some of these countries. And they were modelled on the NHS. But now we're becoming the model maker for the US healthcare system. And that's the new model we're following. And I thought this is the unbundling process that I described. 
where the services like pathology, and if you go around the clock, you can see it starts with pharmaceuticals, which have been in the marketplace for a very long time, but they account for 14% of the NHS budget, 14 billion pounds it flows. No transparency about why drugs cost so much. Dentistry has gone a long time ago. How many of you have got NHS dentists and pay? And how many of you pay when you go to the NHS dentist? A lot of money, yep. uh, That should be optical services, but increasing that's going to be ophthalmology. Long-term care went, as you know, in the 70s and 80s. It was privatised. It's all means-tested, out of pocket. That was all provided within the NHS once upon a time. Then we had the great unbundling under PFI of the catering, cleaning and laundry services all out to tender. We've got the equipment, we've got the big PFI projects, pathology, radiology, medical records. And now we're on the last bit at 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock. GPs are increasingly (coughs) salaried either by other GPs who own the businesses or they're being salaried by big corporates like Virgin and they will increasingly, their duty will be to the shareholders and not to patients. Hospital doctors and nurses are no longer on national terms and conditions. It's all increasingly being done through trusts and local pay negotiation. So that's another big change that's taking place. And nurses and doctors and physiotherapists and OT and all the paramedics Many of them are being outsourced. So the Royal Free in London, all the physiotherapist services are now out to tender. They're out in the private sector. So what you can see is enormous fragmentation beginning to happen with multiple providers and multiple ways of things beginning to go wrong. So this is a PFI that's a huge source of controversy. Has Bath got a PFI? I think Bristol might have a PFI. Um, and I'll just show you this chart, but it's about, because this is PFI as a form of debt, the government, instead of using our taxes or doing the borrowing itself, goes to the private sector and gets them to raise the money. And the green is the money that's in, $34.7 billion. And this is the money we're going to be paying out, $191 billion over the next 30 years. And these contracts are being renewed for 60 years. And some of my colleagues have looked at some of these contracts and have estimated that for every PFI hospital that's built and operating, we could have had two. But not just two buildings, two that were also being built and operated for 30 years, i.e. with all the staff, the ancillary staff, the catering staff, the cleaning. So we're paying for two and getting one. One for the price of two. So that, of course, the PFI has been, in my view, one of the big engines and motors for privatisation because what it does is it creates enormous problems for trusts. And here you can see these are the different hospitals with PFIs and this is the percentage of income that's taken due to the PFI charge. The blue line that goes across the bottom is what they used to pay. They used never to pay a charge on capital, but since 1990 they have. And the blue line shows that the average cost for a trust should have been around 6% of income. So for every pound they got, six pence would go out. 
Uh, here you can see that some of the PFI trusts are paying up to 35 or 40 percent. So that trust for a long, which is Durham and Darlington, which has been bought back, is 35 percent. Now, if you're taking money out of a hospital to pay shareholders and bankers and equity, what is the bit that gets squeezed? Because traditionally, 80% of the budget, a hospital budget, has been spent on staff. 80%. So if you're taking 60 or 70%, 30% or 35% out, something has to go. And what goes is staff, and then if you haven't got the staff, either you get amid staffs, because quality of care decreases, because the one marker of quality care is your staff, the number of staff, and your trained staff. If you haven't got your staff, then it comes to a point where you actually can't run your service, so you have to close the wards, or you close the beds, and then you lose your contracts because money follows patients, and you're into a downward spiral of deficits and debt. And that's the engine for privatization. And I think it's the second, the second most important thing to remember tonight. The first is that we've re removed the duty and we're bringing in insurance structures. And the second is that PFI has been the great engine for privatization. So it's created enormous affordability problems and the hospitals suck up the resources as a result, the PFI ones, from neighbouring non-PFI hospitals, so that's what the Lewisham campaign was about in South London. If you remember, they went to the High Court and they won, and then the government appealed, and the, and the government lost its appeal uh, when the government was trying to close Lewisham Hospital to bail out the PFI hospitals next door. That was the story of Lewisham. The reason why they wanted to close a very successful, thriving, important hospital in a very inner city area with amazing poverty was because they needed to bail out the neighbouring PFI hospitals. And that's happening time and time again. It happened in Kidderminster, in Worcester. And the problem is it's not a one-off. They're rapacious because the charges for the PFI are going up and up and up. They're indexed to inflation at a time when the NHS budget is falling. And the government is refusing to open these contracts, to put them in the public domain, and it's refusing to us, allow us to see what is going on and the way in which money that should be going to patients and to staff to pay for patient care is actually draining away, it's being diverted, as it is with all the other commercial contracts. So why is the government doing this? Well, the government says it's a question of efficiency. Markets are more efficient. Hands up, how many of you think markets are more efficient? Oh, come on. Must be some of you. <laughs> be brave. <laughs> okay. Well... We have an amazing outlier, don't we? And what's this outlier on the far left? What country is it? Yeah. The USA, which spends 18% of its gross domestic product on healthcare. 18%, that's twice as much as any European country. But not only that, you can see that government's a fairly generous funder. The dark blue shows the percentage that's public and the rest is private. And one of the problems is when you open up a market, 
You have to continue with government funding, but of course what the markets want is your private income. They want to be, persuade you to take out insurance policies, and then one insurance policy isn't enough, so you take out another, co-insurance policies, and that's not enough because you've got what's called co-payments and deductibles. Um, a bit like uh, excess, premium excess, as you know when you crash your car and you have to pay the first £200, that sort of thing. So you can see it's a pretty unhappy story. America is the outlier. But not only is America the outlier, but something like 61 million people, sorry about this slide, actually have no access to health care. They're not covered. That's the same as the whole of the population of England. So out of 300 million people, only 61 million. And these other insured people, many of them are only partly insured, partially insured, and they're flipping in and out of insured and uninsured and partly insured status. And I don't know if any of you have spent any time in the US, but you will know that health care bills is a preoccupation more than two-thirds of all bankruptcies are due to health care bills in the U.S. How many bankruptcies in this country are due to health care bills? No, because we have a National Health Service, which is exactly what Bevan wanted. He, he knew what it was like before 1948 when people had to go in fear, not just of illness and catastrophic illness, but <coughs> catastrophic financial loss. And that's why he put an NHS in. So, here we are. Markets bring new costs that a public bureaucracy doesn't have. Markets, if we turn to an insurance system, bring in marketing and profits, insurer billing, hospital billing, physician billing, medical care administration, so that all that's left is 64%, which goes on pharmaceuticals, diagnostics, um, and staff. In the NHS, how much was spent on administration overall for the first 50 or 60 years? Hazard a guess. 6%. 6%, 6% compared with almost 40%. So this is where we're going if we continue, and costs will escalate, but they will be out-of-pocket costs increasingly. And I've left the paper in Health Affairs, which is a very prestigious journal. Now, we have the Institute of Medicine, which is one of the most august bodies in the US, which has now looked at the estimated sources of excess costs in the US market. And here they've given an estimate of 50 million people who can't get health insurance, and look at the north, so 2.9 trillion, I can't even begin to conceptualize. I should have written them down for you, because I can't conceptualize them. <coughs> but here we have it. Unnecessary services, 210 billion. That's the size of the NHS budget. Inefficiently delivered services, 130 billion from the fragmentation. Excess administrative costs, 190 billion. Overcharging, 109.5 billion, and misprevention, 55 billion. Because what markets do is their job is not to find the patients that need care, but to sell the goods 
that they think they can get away with, that people can pay for. And many, the companies that are currently in the UK, such as Hospital Corporation of America and United Health, have been indicted for fraud and embezzlement in the US. The US is a huge Department of Justice with a big healthcare division, which is dedicated to nothing but fraud and embezzlement, because these commercial providers look for every way they can rip off the government by overcharging and overbilling and saying they do more than they do. But not only that, commercial providers are incentivized to give treatments when patients don't need it. So there are big cases in Florida at the moment with Hospital Corporation of America which have been treating patients for cardiac problems, cardiac surgery, when they didn't need cardiac surgery. Now what sort of patient, what sort of doctor or nurse is giving patients treatments that they don't need? And what sort of system is it that they're working in that facilitates that? But that's what's about ahead of us, a total loss of public trust. At the moment, you trust your GPs, you trust your consultants to do their best for you. You may ask for second opinions, and that's your right. But there's extraordinary trust that they're going to do. They're not going to be conflicted by commerce, by an exchange of money. And that is what's happening here. So they could have had five NHSs for this, maybe three or four. Um, but not only that, all those 60 million people who are uninsured could have health care coverage. So I'm coming to the end. Am I running over time? Bit? Yeah, okay, I'm all right. Okay, I'm coming to the end here. Um, there's a lot more that I could say, but I think I've probably pretty much saturated you. Um, and I'm a public health physician and I'm a researcher. I should have declared my conflicts of interest, and I have three. One is that I'm a founding member of Keep Our NHS Public, a campaign group that we set up about 15 years ago. Uh, the second is I was chair of the NHS Consultants Association, which is hospital doctors, very progressive hospital doctors. And the third is I'm now on the British Medical Association Council for my sins. But what can we do next? Well, there's plenty. I don't think you should despair. I really, really don't think you should despair. This is in our hands. This is a political project, and political projects have a nasty habit of being derailed, and you can derail them. So if anything I've said tonight, and the, and the government will try and say, Alison Pollock's talking rubbish, she doesn't know what she's saying. Indeed, during the passage of the Health and Social Care Bill, the junior minister put blogs up on the Department of Health website attacking me, which really tells you something when a minister and their civil servants have to abuse their positions of power and actually put personal blogs up about our work. And that shows you we were getting somewhere. So I think the first thing, if you're really moved by what's happening, is you must bombard your MPs and the Lords. You just go for it. You write to them. They hate, they love to be loved, MPs. So you have to tell them how much you hate what's happening. And keep it up, keep the pressure up. The second thing is that for the last year, um, Peter Roderick, who's a barrister myself, have been working on an emergency bill for the day when a new government comes to power. 
We've been working with David Owen, who's not Labour's best friend, I know, because he destroyed in part the Labour Party, but he was a stalwart. He was the only one that stood firm in the Lords during the passage of the bill, saying, saying, calling it as it was. And we have drafted a bill, a very short bill with six short clauses on two pages, which will restore that duty on the Secretary of State to secure and provide health care for all. And if that duty is restored, you don't need to worry about commissioners and purchasers of provider splits because structures have to follow function. When that duty is restored, the civil servants then have to work away and sort it all out. And everything begins to dissolve. All the market structures will dissolve away and new structures will come in. So that's the most important thing, and you have to go for Labour in this one. Labour's got its manifesto out saying it will repeal the bill. That's not enough to repeal. It has to replace it with this duty to secure and provide. So go and look at David Owen's website and my website for that and get that one out. The next thing is locally. You've got a campaign against privatisation, whether contracts have been privatised already, you have to have groups that are going to get them, demand that they're put in the public domain and get the full contracts, the same with PFI, and actually oppose every proposed privatisation. So the government's got a billion-pound contract at the moment for cancer services in the Midlands, I think it is. You've got to make sure that they know you don't want that. And I think, and I've never said, felt this so strongly, but now you have to campaign against every hospital and service closure. Once upon a time, hospitals, some hospitals were closed because they needed to be, because it made sense. Some services were closed, and it was always unpopular. We're not in that scenario anymore. The NHS beds have been cut so much that we've got 61 million people we've got fewer than 160,000 beds, when once we had 450,000. And the beds are still being closed. You have to campaign against every service closure and every hospital closure. And I notice that in some parts of the country, people are actually physically occupying mental health facilities to prevent services from being closed. And the other thing is, the media are completely complacent and quiet. Probably until this day, today, many of you had not... How many of you had heard this until today? How many of you is it a sort of... Yeah, so some of you, it will come as a bit of a shock. And that's because the media hasn't been doing its job, especially the BBC. The BBC told everybody it was all going to be fine because clinical commission groups would be run by GPs and you'd have a GP-led service. Does this look like a GP-led service? No. So you've got a lot of work to do, and I think, it's really, I think it's really important that you do do it. I mean, I know there's a Keep Our NHS public group here locally. Um, those of us who are in professions, whether it be union, trade unions like Unison or Unite or the BMA or the RCN, you've got to get behind your leadership, and you've got to make sure that they're not going for their gongs, but they're going for their patients. And I'm going to end with one other thing that's happening that I think is very important. Because if you think about it, increasingly you're going to be going to a myriad of private providers. What does that mean for your data? Patient data. 
because for 60 years, patient data has been given, it's a, it's a confidential exchange, a very precious exchange between the patient and the doctor or the healthcare provider. You tell them your secrets, your fears, your worries. It's really precious. It's not like going to the supermarket and saying, yes, I agree to my details being released. It's a very different transaction. And it dates back to Hippocrates, who actually said, there's a duty of confidence here. And that duty of confidence is enshrined in law. There are several laws there, the Data Protection Act, Human Rights Act. There are several laws to protect that duty of confidence. But what happens? Who owns our data? Well, in the law, nobody owns the data. Nobody owns data in the law. So what happens when it passes to this myriad of private providers? Well, the government has a plan. The government, in Part 9 of the Health and Social Care Act, sees your data as an asset to be exploited commercially. So they've set up in part nine of the Health and Social Care Act a way of establishing healthcare systems that can compel the collection of your data and um, compel, uh, can enable its commercialization and exploitation. Now don't get me wrong, I'm a public health doctor. Data are the lifeblood of a public health system. We need it. We need it for national statistics, we need it for research, we need it for planning, and we need it for audit. And those provisions were already there in something called Section 251 of the 2000 NHS Act. Those provisions were there. What the government has done is put in a new set of provisions which enables the private sector to require the establishment of information systems for them and the sharing and spread of data. And that's what led to the BMA and the Royal College of GPs and Med Confidential earlier this year calling for an opt-out campaign. The government instituted a pause in January, if you remember. Do you remember the last time it had a pause? <laughs> had a pause nearly two and a half years ago of the Health and Social Care Act when the controversy was raging. But of course it didn't use that pause, it only used the pause to take the heat out of the system, not to change anything. And I'm very worried because on May the 7th, the care bill is going through with new amendments tabled by the government, which will do nothing to protect our data. And once again, as Anna said, Peter Roderick and I last of the last month, he has carefully drafted three amendments which uh, are really vital to protect the confidentiality, to enable research to happen, and to prevent your data from being commercialized. And the reason why it matters if it goes to commercial companies is that these are insurance companies. These are healthcare companies that will use it for marketing, for targeting. Pharmaceutical industry doesn't need your data. They never have because they get informed consent. There's a whole set of regulations that cover that. So there's no excuse for commercial companies to have your data um, for anything other than for medical purposes. And what we're really worried about is the government has said your data can now be available for general purposes. General purposes. Really, really worrying. Um, in the last two days, I've been in touch with the um, Academy of Medical uh, uh, Royal Colleges. There's 21 of them trying to persuade them to get behind the three amendments. So if there are any people who are members of these royal colleges, can you please 
get straight to your presidents onto the phone tomorrow or the next day and lobby them to support the amendments which are on my website and we're trying to get three lords to table. It's very late in the day. What that will do in the short term is it will prevent commercial exploitation, it will put in proper oversight, it will stop commercial exploitation and sale of your data, and it will allow then a longer period to get the legislation right, because that's what we need to do. If not, you're going to be very vulnerable, because in America, patients consent to give their data, but they're told if they don't consent to their data it can actually affect their care and they may not get the most ideal care. It won't, they're not supposed to be... And so, actually, if you're in a very vulnerable position as a patient, you're always going to consent because you want to get the best care. So if you're told it will get... But once that data then passes in America to the private providers, there's no control over what happens to it. So the government is clearly hoping that this will go away and that we'll have private providers in and actually then by then none of you will care. So I think it's really important that you get behind that, look at the Med Confidential website and look and see what's happening on May the 7th. So this is something where some of you may be able to act now with the colleges and the Royal Statistical Society and all the other societies that you're members of. We have an um, editorial in The Lancet tomorrow that you can read, and you, you're very well, you should use that widely too. So um, I'm stopping now. I've gone on too long. I suppose this isn't a very orthodox lecture, um, and um, I apologise for the bit of activism at the end, um, but we're public health physicians, so what do you expect? Thank you. Microphone. Uh, um, um. Yes, um, it's my name, AlisonPollock.com. A l l y s o n p o l l o c k dot com. So my name run together dot com. I'm very grateful for the advice of what we can do because I have been getting depressed. Um, but what issue? One issue that's imminent before even the next general election. Is the TTIP in Europe? Have you any advice where, what we can do? Because that might stop anything we want to do here unless we get out of Europe. Well, my understanding is that the UK government's already liberalised, made concessions around hospital services. So I'm not sure that the... Um, the investment protection, investor protection, the transatlantic trade investor protection treaty is going to make very much difference except in terms of disputes because currently where there are disputes it's state upon state but what we might get is investors now taking states to court and that's what we're very worried about. So that's it. But in some ways I think it's peripheral. I think it's peripheral to the big fight. I mean, it's an important second other fight to have, but it's peripheral to this. Hi, I'm Laura Alfred. I'm the um, council member for the southwest of England for the Royal College of Nursing. Um, 
Thank you so much for an excellent um, speech and presentation. It was really informative. I think what people should start realising that at this moment in time, 40% of our membership in the South West are already in the private independent sector. 40% of nurses working allegedly for the NHS. And I totally agree with you. They find it... Um, appalling that they do have to wear the NHS badge along next to their private sector employers. So I, I think if we think it's you know, not happening, it's already happened. And I think with the Southwest Pay Cartel, when they tried to um, affect our wages and tried to take us out of the national terms conditions, they attacked the Southwest first because they thought we were an easy option, but we're not. So I think please get behind this and really, really fight for this because this is the NHS. I've done 38 years as a nurse and I'm really sad to see that this happened on my watch. And we need to get more of that data out there because once people are employed by private companies, they find it more difficult to speak up. Uh, thank you very much, Alison, and I'm glad you've done a commercial for activism at the end because I'm going to just take advantage of that because I coordinate the local... Baines protect our NHS group and clearly we're always um, keen to have new supporters, people who can join us in what is a very difficult fight because you rightly said it's very complicated, the public don't really understand what's going on and it's very hard to get the information. So if people here want to join that network and help us to campaign locally, then please give me their name and address, uh, email address at the end of the meeting and we'll put you on our mailing list and invite you to join our campaigns. Thanks for an excellent lecture. Um, could you say a little bit more about why you emphasised the first point on your diagram there? Because I think for me, the, um, the, the campaign against privatisation is the most important thing, as the last question seemed to, seemed to highlight. And although I think it would be important to restore the duty of the Secretary of State to provide that comprehensive service, I don't really understand why simply just doing that is going to um, create a whole new series of structures. And indeed, I don't think it would necessarily stop the drive towards privatisation. Well, I, it, it may well have been one of the big checks. Because if there's a duty to secure and provide universal health care, then at any one point, a group of patients could actually take the Secretary of State to court, and that was getting perilously close to that. So the privatization means that if there's a duty to secure and provide, then basically you're returning control back to government, and that then would bring a halt to further privatization, because once you've privatized, you've lost control. So... It's important to campaign against privatisation, but, but actually it's much more important to get that back in place because then the structures... I mean, for instance, you wouldn't need to change the names. The CCGs would just simply become area-based again. So you can keep the name, but they would have to be area-based. They wouldn't be insurance pools. The resources would flow according to areas. Because the other thing that's happened that's very inequitable is that all the resource allocation mechanisms have also been disrupted. So you need, a, in order to deliver a universal healthcare system, you need a technical bureaucracy. You can't get that bureaucracy back until you put that duty back. And that duty back is much more likely to stay further privatisation. So up to now, it's been, apart from the PFI, it's been largely experimental. 
Now it's taking on a completely new force. It's really so far, and the government wants to do as much as it can before 2015. Sorry about this. Um, the question is, why are they doing this? If, as you say, all the evidence is against it, um, why are they doing it? Maybe the audience can answer that. I mean, you know, when the Act was passed, I, I saw something recently um, that said one in four MPs and peers actually had ha conflicts of interest when they voted on the bill, i.e. commercial conflicts of interest. They were bound up with healthcare companies. So that might be one argument. A second is ferocious lobbying, and a third is the ignorance of our MPs. Short-sightedness. I don't know, others may have responses. This is not so much a question as a comment that kind of reinforces some of the things you've said. My background in the NHS has been working to improve patient safety. And one of the most important things about that is that, that um, providers of services that are able to admit when things go wrong, learn the lessons and share those lessons so that everybody else doesn't have make the same mistakes. With commercial pressures, none of that's going to happen. No commercial company is ever going to admit outside its own boundaries that anything has gone wrong. And so those lessons won't be learned and the mistakes will go on being made and pa patients will go on being harmed. It's a really important factor and it, it, it isn't widely accepted or known that that's part of the, the package. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, we have some elections coming up, don't we? I wanted to ask you, since the three major parties all seem to have done their bit for the privatisation of the NHS... Um, is there any party that's opposed to it on principle? Well, there is a new <laughs> National Health Alliance party. <laughs> so, and also the Green Party, I think. Green Party, yeah. They should get into an alliance. <laughs> Sorry, um, my question or comment comes from the odd perspective of having been a historian of medicine and then spent 15 years still as a GP watching this happen. Um, with this sort of curious sense of being in a dream where you're screaming and nobody's listening. And I think I, the constant conversation in my head all this time has been, is this conspiracy or cock-up? I think from within government it's more like cock-up, lack of understanding, being successfully lobbied in these conflicts of interest. Because actually the, the outcome of all this is going to be massive cost, fragmentation and dissatisfaction. In the end, I don't see that there are very many, many politicians who really want that. Oh, I think you're being what, too. I think you're being too generous. Too, if you read, generous, if you're reading, if you read Nicholas Timmons' um, biography of the welfare state, where Clark and Thatcher and Lawson, they were all sitting down and planning the internal market, and there have been some. I mean, this is really, really well thought through. This is not cock up. This is design, and so was the 2000s were designed. Now. There are a whole lot of MPs who are out of the loop who just go along with whatever they're told, their whips. But this is a very careful plan. Bit by bit, they've picked them off. The GP contract, the hospital contract, the foundation trust. There's nothing well, there. That, it's, it's a conspiracy, all right. It's a well-executed right. but yeah. ultimately self-defeating process. Well, they don't care. They don't care because it's an ideology, it's a religion. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. Yeah. The other comment I wanted to make is, is really following on from this gentleman's point about um, just giving the Secretary of State back this duty to provide care. Because at the sort of local level where I'm watching this happening, the big problem is that the CCGs 
are not able to wait when they're appraising new contracts, when things have to go out to tender, there's no choice about whether they go out to tender, they have to go out to tender, and they're not allowed to give weighting to existing contract providers. Mm. In other words, what really matters to patients, i.e. that there'll be no disruption, mm. that services will continue to operate as they will, that is deliberately ignored. And at the same time, they're terrified of being sued by these organisations, many of which have vastly greater resources to spend on legal process than they have. And I can't quite see how just giving it back to the Secretary of State takes away all of that, because that would continue to operate even on a population basis. Or it could continue to operate even on a population-based service. Well, once you put in the market, you've opened a Pandora's box. Um, and what you're actually saying is that you're going to get ferocious lobbying, and you will get ferocious lobbying from the private sector. But we've got to be even more ferocious. You know, Bolivia reversed its water privatization and then faced big sanctions in the WTO courts because of people's protests. The, the politicians couldn't hack it anymore. So, you know, the, the, you know things are possible at, at, a, at a cost, of course. Uh, I'm Simon Newell. I'm one of the regional organisers for Unison. And uh, just to give you a bit of information about what has been going on within this part of the southwest, we've got the major PFI hospital in Bristol. It's Southmead. It's just opening now. That will, as you said, Alison, cost many, many more times uh, over a period of time to, to not to buy, but effectively give away the site uh, that they have at French Aid, give away the land that they stand on even at Southmead, forever and a day, and then rent back forever and a day the, the, the new buildings which are being built there. But that's not, that's not exactly privatisation, but uh, externalisation and putting healthcare into the independent sector is both into the private sector and the not-for-profit sector. And in Bath and in Bristol, all community services are provided by um, community interest companies. That's their proper title or social enterprises as they're sometimes referred to, the John Lewis partnership model um, and I don't think that if any, anybody has ever worked for John Lewis or uh, Waitrose that they actually think they own the company or have any real say in how it's run uh, but that was the way it was, it was um, sold to managers who put in bids to run these services and our members uh, in terms of conditions are under threat in those but not only in those but in the, at the RUH, um, in the trust in Bristol, where our members, the vast majority of NHS staff, have received no pay rise now for three years. And this year, the independent pay review body has recommended a 1% across-the-board increase. And the government is saying, no, you can have 1% unconsolidated, uh, non-enhanceable, but only at the top increment. So there's no cost-of-living increase for anyone who's still learning their their trade, who, who might be progressing, if they're lucky, up the incremental scale, but there's no increase in those levels, so they will not be being paid the same in real terms, or anything like real terms, as their colleagues were last year or the year before, as they progress up those scales. And at the end, we have got some information we'd like to pass out where we're asking people to sign an e-petition about that, because interestingly, the government have said, if, if you remember when they had the MPs expenses scandal that they set up an independent body to reward MPs 
And when they've come out with this huge recommend, this recommendation for huge increases, they said there's nothing we can do about that. It's an independent body. Well, the pay review body is meant to be an independent body, but government can can manipulate that and can not pay what it recommends. And it's done that over many years. So please do sign that petition and please get your friends and relatives to do so as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's very helpful. A, a comment, really, yeah. about conspiracy. Much of that act was written by senior civil servants before the last election of the Health and Social Care Act. And another uh, element of the conspiracy is the gagging law, because our freedom to raise this matter and campaign against this at the next election is severely curtailed Can by you the gagging law. You've obviously got special insights. Can you say a bit more? Uh, you've got special knowledge. Yeah. Well, the, the, the gagging law actually prevents large organisations, scary ones like 38 Degrees, because there are two million members, uh, yeah, yeah. from ca effectively campaigning yeah. in uh, constituencies against yeah. uh, MPs yeah. like mine, who told me he wasn't going. To, he was against any uh, when he wanted to be elected against any reform to the health service and that the Lib Dems were totally against it. And what does he do? He supports everything all the way down the line. And then he tells me that he was very desperately sorry about the, the gagging law, that he was going to do this, that and the other. And what does he do? He votes for everything down the party line. So it, there is a conspiracy to privatise and, and to, to, to abolish the National Health Service purely because of cost and the perception that it should be privatised mm -hmm. to make money for people. Okay, thank you. Um, what I would like to sort of uh, refer to really is, uh, number one, your support for David Owen, who is uh, in favour of an internal market, and uh, I think that, that that means that he's pro-market, so I can't see that uh, that will aid our cause. And secondly, it's about the pre preferred provider. <coughs> Labour are very strong on they want a preferred provider, therefore they also believe in the market. Yeah, yeah. I cannot possibly <laughs> see that supporting Labour at the next election is going to be any other different than the, the present situation as it is today. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about politics is you have very strange bedfellows, and Anna probably knows this yeah. in health all the time, and I little thought that I would be working with David Owen on a restoration <laughs> bill. Um, and I agree, he was a great champion for the internal market. He was behind it way back in the late 80s, early 90s. And I've had many arguments with him about it and will continue to do so. And, um, uh, but there are, there are some lines of agreement. And actually, I think he's moved now. I think he begins to see the problems with his internal market because he's not an unintelligent man. Um, quite the contrary. Um, but I, I agree, I think it's really terrible. We don't know what Labour are going to do, and they've not come out to say... I don't trust them. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. As an American who's fairly new to this country, this is a, an area of particular interest to me. And one thing you were saying earlier about people who who um, have difficulty with access to CCGs, I think was the um, homeless and elderly and people with disease. Is that what you said? Was that the, what was the third group? Refugees and migrants. Oh, refugees. Oh, okay. Well, I was just wondering um, about uh, pre-existing conditions and how people, well, at least in America, that's what the big difficulty is in getting insured 
is that you don't, if you have a pre-existing condition, um, it makes it very difficult to even pay for insurance. And if um, people in this country start moving towards private, uh, and you were saying that the um, information would be would be known, how would that, you know, be handled? Well, I think what the government would like to move to is a sort of voucher-based system, um, which even the Americans haven't done, where you will get a certain amount of care, and then the rest of it you will have to pay or buy yourself. But that's beginning to happen through reducing entitlements. So even if you've got, you'll, 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 you may end up with a CCG, but it may be that they can't buy all the care that you need. And that's probably what's going to happen. Yeah, would you like to illustrate that? Lovely. Could you give a, have a, mic, a microphone? I, I'm very fearful for what's going to happen in the future, but exactly what's happening now is, if, I'm not quite sure if it's remnant of the past or whether it's a sign of what's to come. But uh, the issue of being able to, the this, this system, you know, whoever's, whatever system we have being able to provide has been with us in various ways so that people who need some sort of ongoing care or support, for example, uh, teenagers who are in the CAM system needing expensive long-term placements, um, our applications have got to go for joint funding and that, that there is no money in that system you know, it goes broke on a regular basis all over the country. And those young people just have to sit deteriorating. You know, so that it's like we've got a system that isn't working now. Yeah. And I think it'll work even less well in the future. But the, the outcome for those young people is that this period of being sort of locked on to children's wards and general hospital waiting for specialists, mental health services, are actually cooking personality disorder problems of a big scale. So they start to self-harm. They start to self-destruct. And it is just awful. We have to find some way of getting control. You know, I think that that's the word. We have to get control over the system. Um, you, don't, you didn't mention the 20 billion um, efficiency cuts. Um, I would have thought that has had a major effect um, on the ability of the um, NHS to protect itself. Um, and I think it fits in very clearly with the conspiracy notions of what's happening with government uh, attacks on the NHS. It's an important point. Um, McKinsey's were commissioned to do a report in which they've set out so-called efficiency savings of between 20 and 30 billion. Um, but the evidence behind those savings isn't there, but you're absolutely right. It's uh, one of the, along with everything else, it's one of the big drivers. And it's the point is that NHS income is falling at a time when the PFI costs and other costs are rising. So you get the perfect storm. So thank you. I couldn't put everything in, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Thank you very much for this evening. I was one of the people that was totally shocked at everything I heard this evening. <clears throat> and what I've got out of it most of all is the fact that the word needs to be spread, as you say, and that all ages need to know about it. 
I mean, social media needs to be buzzing with it. You know, all. And I, I really don't understand how the media can have such a conspiracy of silence. You know, right across the board. I mean, I know it's, it's across all, all political parties, but I, I don't understand how that's happened. There is, I mean, you have to think of the BBC has also been marketised. It's had its John Burt internal market. Um, all sorts of, you know, they're obviously very nervous of doing anything that isn't what the government wants them to do. Um, but it is a disgrace, it's a scandal. I mean, I didn't do one single, I mean, I know, I, mean, I don't mean this vainly, but you'd think that they'd have asked me for my opinion on the Today programme, wouldn't you? Uh, on what was happening to the NHS, you know, given I've written and worked on it. Not once in the whole year during the passage of the bill was I invited on. But also, a lot of the BBC journalists, like Humphreys, etc., they have private health insurance. I mean, we pay, through our, we pay £3 million towards the private insurance of the BBC. So, you know, the senior execs, they're on, and also, they're on such huge salaries. You know, they're earning three, four 400000 You know, they don't, it doesn't really matter to them, you know, anymore. Um, thank you. That, some, some of that sounded very like what's happening to higher education as well. Um, although where, we're, where are you? I'm over here. <laughs> um, although we're at an earlier stage. I think we can understand why uh, assorted crooks and bankers would be interested in what's happening. Um, they've got cocaine and prostitutes to pay for, I think. But um, <laughs> what, what coherent, cogent argument has anyone put forward um, from a public point of view why this might conceivably be a good thing? I work in the local hospital here in the pathology services. I can say when they say efficiency savings, it's not our budget has been cut 5% every single year at the hospital. It's not, it's not we're asked to be 5% more efficient. It's a 5% budget cut as well as any efficiency savings. Second brief point is integration has mostly gone or is rapidly going because we provide services to a lot of private companies now and we have patients flitting between those and their GPs and between different hospitals. We actually have almost nowhere to send some of your results sometimes. We don't know who to send them to. Because a lot of the time we're not told where it's come from. It will come on one of the forms we provide but they won't tell us where. Sometimes they won't Occasionally it will come from your GP, but they'll point out that it's being done on behalf of a private company. So we're not sure whether to charge the GP, charge the private company, or if the GP is charging the private company. It's actually a bit of a mess. And pretty soon, all of community pathology services will be going out for tender. Because, the CG, because we used to get the bulk of our money from GPs because that's where the bulk of the half, of the half a million of tests we year come from. And our services are only profitable. Well, we can only fund the service if that money comes in. The hospitals can't afford to fund it themselves. It would take too much out of their budgets, even though that's where we're based. And when that goes out, they're going to go for the lowest provider, the lowest cost. And what we're seeing at the moment is we're having an awful lot of untrained staff with the few trained staff left mostly just supervising them. 
and that's the future. Thank you. So I, I've forgotten one other important campaigning, which is your clinical commissioning group. Anybody here from a clinical commissioning group? Oh, nobody from Bath Clinical Commissioning Group or Bristol. Well, that tells you, doesn't it? Then I think you've got to go to your clinical commissioning groups and you've got to start to lobby them. They need to take the services back in-house and they really, you need to put, some of them are very good, the CCGs, and they are trying to do that. Others are very entrepreneurial and they see, you know, a good chance. So that, I think that's the other key action from tonight you've got to do is find out who's on the CCG board and absolutely go and lobby them and don't believe it when they say, well, we can't afford to and the government tells us we've got to go out to tender because they don't. They don't have to do that. That's what our local CCG says every time. Yes. We have to do this. Well, put, that, put that in writing and go to the key, the, you know, get, get the authoritative position on that, but that is not true. So that's not in the air They don't have to go out to tender. No. I mean, it forces them to, you know, and, and, so, and there are all sorts of ways around it if you're creative and imaginative. Excuse me. I am working and have been for a while through every group I can think of to save the NHS, and I wonder if there's some way that those groups can get together so we have a national impact, like 38 Degrees, 999, call NHS and NHS Action Party. We just need to fight bigger, I feel, maybe. As well as the small. I know, it's very hard. Well, remember, everything's fragmented, so you have to fight in your local But we patches. need people with some... stature yeah. to pull them all together. But there is a together. keep our NHS public overarching campaign, so those sorts of questions could, and open democracy. Caroline Malloy, Open Democracy, you could go to her because she's produced briefings on the tendering process, so there are resources there about that. Okay. If I switch down to Chelsea, I had a CCG when they asked about why we were going back to tender. But they said because of the um, we were in Europe, that any business were earning over one hundred and fifty thousand pounds had to go out to tender across Europe. Well, only if they're deciding to go down the commercial route. I mean, there is a there is a pressure on them to do that, but there are ways around it if they don't. I mean. Remember, for 70 years we had no commercial contracts. We had no commercial procurement. They were all what's called service level agreements. So clinical CCG should be thinking about how can we be creative and actually preventing that from happening and getting some good legal advice to do that. Thank you. Right. I'm going to try this to an end because the questions just keep going on. But thank you. Thank you to Alison. I think